This is a CBC podcast. The following podcast is about family relationships and the harms of colonization on Indigenous people in Canada. It contains depictions of racism and abuse. If you need support, you can find information about where to turn for help at cbc.ca/theherboriginal. I'm at my cousin Sandra Dittaward's house, my father's niece, in my home village of Lacwellams. There you are. Are you okay? Is that still? Are you? We... I just caught up. Come on in. Okay. <laughs> it's the holiday. In her dining room, I can see the ocean through the glass patio doors. Mm. Well. Sandra takes a seat close to me. You make your own jam? Hmm. Yeah. I used to. Geraldine made this. It's Amish rhubarb jam. And it has... She's a slight woman in her 70s. She's wearing thick glasses, a hearing aid, and she's eating her morning toast. In her lavender jogging pants and a cardigan, she looks sweet and harmless. But I'm uneasy. As I sit at her polished oak dining room table, and she looks at me expectantly, I want to be anywhere but here. I'm Rudy Kelly. This is The Herb Original, Episode 3, It Takes a Village. I have to take a ferry to go and see Sandra. It's a 40-minute trip up Tuck Inlet through dripping green rainforest, the call of seabirds, and the occasional passing boat. Often you'll see a bear or wolf standing on the shore, or, according to locals, Sasquatch. It's calm. Serene, even. An uncomfortable pause where I'm forced to think about what this visit could do to me. How it might undo all of my efforts to try and keep the legacy of my father at bay. To many, my dad was the great chief of the Simshan Nation, Nis Wibas, champion of the language, the culture, and the indigenous ways. He was also an entertainer who sang, played the trumpet and the guitar, and told great jokes. Everyone loved him. Did I? As a kid, I looked up to him idolized him but I also feared him and hated him he was my dad but he was a bully and the main reason I turned my back on my culture to say no to what he was what he stood for I couldn't reject just parts of him it was all or nothing Now, here I am, driving off the ferry, looking at the faces in the cars lined up to board the vessel. Most are familiar, if only in their features. Some smile, most just glance. And then, I'm on the road to Lacwellams, which winds, rises, and dips, kind of like my life. 
the first thing we used to do when we'd come home in the summer. We came home every summer. Get in the buckets. We're going picking berries. And of course, my mother didn't think it was a great. You got to clean up the kitchen. Mom will clean up the kitchen, but I mean, we never got it quite to <laughs> the pristine state we found it in. <laughs> a flower sticking or something. But she put up with it. My cousin Sandra did a word has never done me wrong. But when I see her, resentment wells up within me. Because she was always more of a daughter to my dad than, well, his daughters, my sisters. When we were kids and the Dudawards visited, it was like royalty was arriving. It wouldn't have surprised me if my dad asked me to announce their names as they entered. <coughs> now arriving, Her Majesty, Princess Sandra of Lakwalams. Just not being assholes was hard enough for us, but with the Dudawards in the house, we had to be on our best behavior. If we were playing too loud or not letting the Dudaward kids have their way, we would get it from my dad. Once, when we were outside playing, I accidentally knocked one of the sisters down and broke her glasses. She went crying into the house, more upset about the glasses than angry at me because she knew it was an accident. But I still incurred my dad's wrath. He was amazing. He was just an amazing person. And, uh, yeah, he was so good. And he'd just sit there, and then he'd just speak his truth, you know, like, and you didn't doubt it coming from him. <laughs> you know, it was like, this is it. So I miss him like crazy. So, you know, like, there wasn't anything. I don't think there wasn't anything he wouldn't do for us. And when I would, when I was in my teen years and, you know, starting hanging around boys and stuff, I remember mom going to your, to uncle, and I was so upset that she went. And he just gave me a talking to He was very much involved in our upbringing and in our well-being. So even though those traditional roles had kind of slipped away, um, he very much, we, were, we belonged to him. That, just as simple as that. It really is. He was the chief, and we belonged to him. Because I, I counted on him a lot. Growing up, us kids could count on my dad more for his anger and judgment than support. Useless was the word he frequently used to describe us. While my dad took care of Sandra like a father, doted on her, showered her with affection, and prepared her to become a cultural leader, he hid us, cursed us, even sent us away to become more white as he did with me, or because we were bad which was a simple explanation he gave to my brother Irwin when he was sent to reform school on Vancouver Island. He said, you're, you're, he said uh, we can't handle you anymore. It's, uh, it's your own fault. That's what that's, I remember exact words. I was crying away. Irwin wouldn't come home for nearly a year. And when I got out and I seen Dad, I went over to see Dad at uh, Checker Cabs or... He said, holy shit, you're taller than me. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Well, 
I think that's the last time I hugged him. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. But as Sandra and I sit together, all these decades later, she talks about the role of the father in our matrilineal society. He said that a chief was like a father. So he was our father. And he really did. He really played that role that, of a father to a lot of people, and particularly to us, because in our way, it is your uncle that's the closest to you. You know, your father's there. Your father has, of course, certain duties and stuff. But your uncle is the one who teaches you about who you are and where you come from and what the laws are and all of those things. And he would, and you could tell from that that he was brought up traditionally. You know, he was brought up a very traditional man. And so he knew that his, you know, he, of course he was responsible for you guys. He was your dad, you know, but it's not the same kind of role that you see in Western society. It's because we were his future, you know, he, he had a responsibility because we are the ones that are going to come along and fill those places, you know, as we grew up. So he was very much responsible for, what kind of people we turned out to be, um, very much responsible for. And I can remember him giving money to my mom to, you know, buy us stuff. For, and we just always knew that, you know, he loved us a whole bunch. Sandra's words hit me like a huge wave. I need to grab hold of the table. By treating them like they were his kids... He was being true to the customs. They were, after all, his clan. Eagles. And a good chief looks after his tribe above all. But it's not enough. My father wasn't just negligent with us. He was often cruel, violent, with us and my mom. And that was not part of our culture. I tried to think of my dad in those circumstances, fighting to save our communities, our culture, from being torn apart, from the poison of colonization, while being contaminated himself. The systemic changes, the severe practices being wrought on our people, had gotten into him too, into most indigenous fathers across the country. Like the blankets that carried smallpox, it spread a scourge of violence and abuse through our families that would be passed on through generations and continue to be. Violence was certainly a staple in the Kelly family. I have vivid memories of horrific fights, many of which, ironically, came at the most wonderful time of the year. Christmas was always highly anticipated. The Kelly House was famous for its parties, none more than the annual Christmas Eve party. It always started so jubilant, filled with music and laughter, and everyone was welcome. Dozens of friends and relatives came. There were fish sandwiches and egg sandwiches and pastries to eat, lucky lager, cheap brandy and whiskey flowing like water. And the best part? my mom and dad, singing together. I would eagerly await my dad's directive to fetch his guitar from their bedroom, 
a treasured duty passed down through the siblings. My parents would sit together in front of the living room table. I'd get as close to them as I could and, along with everyone else, listen to their beautiful harmonies as they performed hymns like The Old Rugged Cross and holiday classics like Elvis Presley's Blue Christmas. They look so in love. This is what moms and dads did. This is what a family looked like. Until my brothers usually started things. Maybe an hour or two after the hearty hugs and handshakes that followed the strike of midnight. You could see them glancing at each other, saying, You want to go? My dad would get angry, and then he would join the fray. It felt like a tornado, a battle royale pulling all of us into the rage, the hate, the hurt. All except for my mom. I could see her crying and, in vain, calling for the screaming and punching to stop. Then, she's at the phone on the wall, calling the police, on a rotary dial in those days, so it was agonizingly slow. The next day, Christmas Day, my mom would clean up the mess, mostly by herself. After that, she'd be in the kitchen for hours preparing a huge turkey dinner with mashed potatoes, cranberry sauce, her stuffing, peas, corn and a couple of store-bought apple pies. And all of it would be hardly touched. My dad and my older siblings would be too hungover to make an appearance. Dad's hangovers were the worst, and we were subjected to his deep groans, and cursing, Son of a bitch! in between bouts of sleep and loud, wall-shaking snoring. But no matter how hungover I was, I always dragged myself to the table. My younger sister sometimes made it too. Because I'm allergic to turkey, my mom would cook pork chops especially for me. As we sat down to eat, just the two or three of us, my mom would say, every time, I guess they're all too hungover, eh? I would nod with a small, sympathetic smile. It was at that moment, on that day every year, that I loved her the most. We were shits. Absolute shits. But she kept showing up and being her. Violence was common then. And it wasn't unique to our family. I saw it. I heard it. During visits, sleepovers, the shouts, the screams, the hard smacks. It was everywhere. And it's no wonder. We were all lost. Torn from tradition. And people like my parents were just trying to stay afloat in a world that was not built for them. Like thousands of other indigenous people, 
They were caught in a wave of mass migration to find work at the canneries along the north coast of British Columbia in the early 20th century. These massive operations employed indigenous, Japanese, and Chinese workers to can millions of salmon on a stretch of the Skeena River known as Cannery Row. My parents worked at the Nelson Brothers plant in the community of Port Edward, which locals simply call Port Ed. It's a 15-minute drive east of Rupert. In the cannery, living quarters were segregated by race. The white people lived up in the town, while down the hill by the water, the indigenous workers lived in the so-called Indian village. My parents never spoke to me about moving from their village to such a different world, where they were just cogs in a massive machine. But their lifelong friend, Mona Alexey, does. Oh yeah, Joe, there's your mom. That was the uh, retirement party. I think it was her. Now in her 90s, Mona Alexey and her husband of 71 years invite me to their home in Lacquelams. That's my mom's family. That's her, her... Uh, that's her sister. I'm sitting in a small condo in the village, and we're looking at old wedding photos. These days, Mona's husband, Leonard, struggles with his memory. But Mona recalls her life with remarkable clarity. She looks at me with a wistful smile and runs her fingers along the hem of her cotton shirt. So, <clears throat> yeah, my life story is growing up in a works channel. First, Sheldon lived on the village. And uh, at that time, there was education was not important. Survival was. So we moved around. My family, my parents moved around with the four seasons. My dad being a hunter and a fisherman. So this is how we survive by gathering our own food. Uh, more or less the whole village. Imagine I thought the whole world lived like that. It was not till I went to Port Edward with my parents that I know there, there's a big world out there. It had been a good life for Mona, living with the seasons and living with her tribe. But the world was rapidly changing and, with it, the ability for Mona and her family to keep their traditional ways. Now my mother and dad decided to visit my aunt in Port Edward. So we moved there just for, for the visit. Then they, they got hired to work there. And my dad got on a sane boat and they didn't come home. They just left. We came home here a few years after we were married to see the old house. The dishes were still on the table, breakfast dishes. One day she was living off the land with her tribe. The next, she was thrust into a community of thousands. It was the same for my mom and dad. Before moving to Port Ed, my parents had been living in their home village of Lacqualams. And my dad was fishing with his own boat that he named Crybaby, but his boat was too small to compete in this new world. 
He had to give it up and surrender to this new industry that revolved around cold metal machinery, transforming millions of silver salmon into tiny tins to be shipped around the world. It was a world that some, including Mona, had no idea existed. <laughs> Walk in the cannery, you hear all that noise. I'd never been in a cannery before. I looked there, it's just just like a circus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Mona, my parents, and hundreds of other indigenous people lived in crowded, severe conditions. We lived on the cannery oh, over the water. It's like a dock with the houses there. And uh we did have a little electricity, one bulb in our house. <laughs> and they were not very big uh, accommodation families because it's meant to be a summer home just for working. It was not meant to be a home for winter. It's awfully cold in the winter. But like I said, there was winter jobs, so we stayed on. My siblings tell me about how they had to walk down the dock in the freezing cold to fill a bucket of water from the communal tap. Sometimes the pipe would be too frozen and they would walk back empty. Illness was common, but workers were expected to gut through it. Back then there was no, if you're coughing, stay home. But then tuberculosis hit. It was a scourge that hit indigenous people hard in two ways. The illness itself, and then being sent to so-called Indian hospitals for treatments that these days are classified as experiments where patients were used as guinea pigs. Mona Alexey became one of those patients. She was sent to the notorious Miller Bay Indian Hospital near Port Ed with a hole in her lung that was so big she wasn't expected to survive. And I ended up in the hospital in 49. I give it credit to the change of diet, change of lifestyle. But I don't know, at that time, <coughs> it seemed like there was a breakout on tuberculosis. Yeah, I was there for three years. Uh, gave me treatments, uh, never explained to me what it was. Very harsh treatment. I used to cry when like, I go like for drug my treatments treatment. or Pardon me? what kind of treatments? Well, they collapse your lung. The first year, I didn't do anything. Three years, alone, away from her family, subjected to harsh experimental treatment. Another victim in another white institution. Couldn't comb my hair. I wasn't allowed to. Just lay there for a year. I think that was hard. I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't hold a book. I couldn't brush my hair. Somebody has to do it for me. The nurse has to. It's a lonely life. Yeah. My father represented Lackwalams at the Miller Bay Indian Hospital opening. I'm sure that he had no idea what its real purpose was or how people were treated there. His mother... My grandmother 
was one of the facility's longtime patients, and she would die there. I remember the day she died. I couldn't go in with him, so I waited outside of the hospital, throwing stones in the bay. Her name was Mercy. But Mona would eventually recover, enough to finally leave her bed. Although I was, I was very sick, but after two years, they put me working part-time and different things. <laughs> I enjoyed working with the children as a nurse's aide. I learned quite a bit as nurse's aide. And there she would learn to read, and she would meet her future husband, Leonard. Christmas of 48. They had uh, like an open house where the patients visited each other in different wards. So I met him, never thought of him again. (laughs) (laughs) Leonard was a residential school student. He contracted tuberculosis at the Alberni Residential School on Vancouver Island. And, like many others, Leonard was shipped to the Miller Bay Indian Hospital to recover. After Leonard got better, He was sent back to the school on a steamboat. But he couldn't forget Mona, despite her telling him to. And I tried to discourage him to go and meet friends because I don't know if I ever get out of the hospital. At that point, I wasn't sure. So I said, you got your life ahead. Go on with this life because I don't know. No. Doesn't listen, that guy. I should have learned, eh? (laughs) (laughs) So so he still showed up at your door. (laughs) Yeah. Leonard was so smitten with Mona that he escaped the residential school and survived a dangerous trek back to the North Coast. Back to Mona, who was still in hospital. They, They had a big conference in the hospital. And I sat there like I'm on trial or something. But uh, I always remember the doctor. Well, Mona, what do you think? Would you like to go home for Christmas? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I want to go home for Christmas. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Well, you can go home. Oh, thank you, doctor. Uh, You don't need to come back. What? That's just what I said. You, know? you don't need to come back. You're discharged. You're all well. And that's the point I cried. Once Mona left the hospital, her life went on. She got married, had children, and eventually moved away from the cannery. But it wasn't so easy for my father. Thrust into an environment where he had no status, no stature, where he was just another drone in a huge industry. In the cannery, he found an anger that never went away. He was violent at home and outside of it, and once dared a man to shoot him. Here's my brother, Irwin. Yeah, well, he he got in trouble. He was kind of flirting with one of the guys. That This is my biggie. Yeah. He got in trouble. Uh, flirting with one of the wives, and uh, the guy 
couldn't do anything about it. And he tried and he got smacked in the face. <laughs> and he went home and he got a rifle. So okay. I, I was on top of the roof to see what was going to happen. And and dad grabbed his rifle. Go ahead. I dare you to shoot me. Go ahead. And he took the gun and he put it against his chest. Go ahead. Do it. Do it. <laughs> and the guy, the Joe said, I could, I could shoot you just like, and he shot in the air. I said, oh, man, there's really bullets in there. Scared me off the, almost scared me off the roof. <laughs> so mom said, get his gun, get his gun. He's going to shoot your dad. And I, I, I jumped down, and I snuck around, and I grabbed the gun out of his hand. Cause by then, he was just holding it like this. And he just went, oh. And then pretty soon, the cops came down. And I, I still don't know where that rifle ended up. I hid it <laughs> underneath the dock somewhere. <laughs> it was that same violence that would end our family's time in Port Ed. Oh, yeah, Joe, there's your mom. That was the uh, retirement party. I think it was her her retirement. Yes. Her and uh, Alberta. Yeah, Alberta. Alberta Mona and Leonard, though, they got through it with strength and love. To me, they are the ultimate survivors who, against all odds, found fulfillment. That's my mom's family. That's her the kind of fulfillment that comes from a life lived as best they could. Happiness, in spite of losing much of their childhood to illness, residential school, and difficult cannery work. Today, Mona and Leonard have come full circle. Two years ago, they returned to the village of Lackwalams, their ancestral home. Now they have a beautiful view of the ocean, family, friends, fresh salmon, and a community swimming pool to stretch and soothe their tired bodies. They laugh and smile a lot. Survivors who, despite the many obstacles placed in front of them, now get to write their own ending. For my parents, though, there was little opportunity to veer from the script. Particularly for my dad. He was a product of our traditional system, our ways. He was a good chief, looking after his tribe. But why did he hurt us, neglect us, him and so many others? What system taught him that? On the next episode of The Herb Original... And so I became ashamed, ashamed of being a native, ashamed of my language. And there was times where I wished that I was born another race. (laughs) That was uh, what was instilled into me. The Pope's apology for residential schools provoked reaction from indigenous people from across Canada. For me, it shed new light onto my father's life and his death and onto the way that the church continues to linger in our lives. That's in episode four, The Old Rugged Cross. The Herb Original is written and produced by me, Rudy Kelly, and Carolina DeWright. The sound editing is by Jeff Walter. Our senior producers are Catherine Hansen, Jay Bernoulli, and Sherelle Tolan. At least I hope you do.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.